0: Good
1: morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed epiphany season to all of you this Wednesday, February the 16th, as the light of Jesus shines on us from Matthew chapter 17. The joy of going through this is that we don't just believe this is a nice story or these are nice stories, but they are true historical facts and they are true because they point us back. To Jesus, and now we are back on the plane after the Transfiguration yesterday, which was great with Pastor Degrode. It was just this wonderful reality of we've looked at Transfiguration many times, but we don't live on the mountaintop experiences as he emphasized. But we're back on the plane, and you know what? Back in the plane, guess who goes with them it is Christ Himself, and today we see Him having power over demons, uh, His teaching, and also He says a few words that are kind of straight to the heart, oh, faithless generation, or because of your little faith, and he compares it to a mustard seed. How does this all come together? What does this all mean? How does it point us to Christ? We'll find out today if the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome the Reverend Doctor Kirk Clayton of Zion Lutheran Church in Moscuta, Illinois. Pastor Clayton, happy Epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word.
0: A blessed Epiphany season to you as well, and it's a joy to be with you.
1: Yeah, Pastor, you've been on KFUEL for many years, as far as what I've I've seen in, in our records, and uh, but this is our first time together on Thy Strong Words. Could you introduce yourself and your family and the work of the saints at Zion?
0: Yes, uh, I'm Pastor Clayton. I have the privilege to serve at Zion Lutheran Church in Muscoota, Illinois, as you mentioned. Muscoota is a town of about 8,000 people. It's located about 30 miles east of St. Louis, and the Lord is doing wonderful work here in His Word and Sacraments as we gather together on Sunday mornings now. We're so glad to be back in person for the last you know year and a bit uh, after COVID, and we just keep working and, and striving that our Lord would continue to draw back those that are still hesitant after COVID, and we pray that people would continue to be fed and nourished on his word and sacraments as he gives it every Sunday morning here at Zion. And it's a, a joy to be able to receive our Lord's gifts together and as a pastor to give those gifts from our Lord to- and I, you know, it, it definitely is not simple.
1: I love, I love how you said it because it's, it's, it, I guess it is simple, right? What we do, we give the gifts of Christ that you said—the forgiveness, life, and salvation. Um, but it's a messy world. So it, it, I, I don't. I think about this often: is that when you give the Lord's Supper into someone's hands that you are giving more than just a little bread and a little wine. Of course, we, we believe that, but sometimes I have to remind myself what is actually happening. And so any thoughts on that as, as you give these gifts and encouragement for our listeners on, on the joys of when we do gather as God's people?
0: Yeah, and we can kind of set this up as a preview of what happens in the beginning of our text today, too. Because God has given to his church tremendous blessings, promises beyond what the eye can see. And it's very easy sometimes to question and wonder. So this little little wafer of bread in my hands that I pass on to the saints— Is this really doing anything? Do I really have the authority from God to give out his body and blood and with it the forgiveness of sins and strength of faith to his people? Jesus has said that in his word, but... Do I really believe that this blessing is actually happening right here, right now? When you uh, hand someone the, the chalice with the blood of Christ, is this really bringing forth that blessing that Jesus says of the forgiveness of sins in his blood shed on the cross? And so it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? And so we question, can this possibly be, do we actually believe that God is actually doing through us what he's promised to do for the good of his people? People. And so it's a um, it's a, a regular almost struggle in the pastoral ministry to believe the richness of the blessings that God would give through Word and sacrament, and so you know pastors and people alike are routinely looking for something bigger, something better, something flashier. You know, what if we, uh, you know, do something that's a little bit more spectacular than just a little wafer of bread or a little sip of wine or a little splash of water as we had the great joy of receiving uh, three members of a family through holy baptism last week? You know, the, the water, it was just it was just out of the tap from before the service. There's nothing spectacular about that. And we keep questioning, is God really active? Is he really doing all that he promises to do through these sacraments and then through his word is just printed word on a page read out loud is god really living and active through that as he promises and so there's this constant struggle do we take god at his word or do we doubt do we question do we even fail to believe that god is in fact as good and as giving and as powerful as he says in giving his gifts
1: and that is exactly what we're pointing to, pointed to in our text today. So let's get to the word this morning. Pastor, can you begin our time in prayer? Yes, let us pray.
0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Oh, God, in your word, you have promised to be living and active, stronger than any two-edged sword, dividing joints and marrow. And we pray that you would give us the confidence and assurance that your word truly is a living force in our lives and that as we proclaim it, as we share it, your spirit does, in fact, go forth to drive out all that would keep us from you, strengthen our faith and bring us into your loving arms in time and for eternity may we through our study of your word be built up and strengthened in this faith that nothing may shake or cause us to question the assurance that you give in your word this we pray through jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with the father and the holy spirit one god now and forever amen
1: amen as Pastor said so well, and, and really, is this really true is kind of, how we look at this, that this word that we are saying, as Jesus said, you know, uh, your word is truth. We come, come forward before the Lord today, knowing that this is true and for you in Christ. So if you have any questions concerning our text, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Or call us as on this live program 314-8210850. 314-821-0850. Pastor, we're going to start by reading all the verses, Matthew 17, 14 through 27, the end of chapter 417. And then we will come back and get some of your introductory thoughts. As as we know, and we've talked about this. There's always a context of what we're speaking about, and it really is kind of fun because this reminder to our listeners, it's right after Transfiguration that we studied yesterday, and that is an important piece of when we look at what happens today. So we hear God's word from the English Standard Version, Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And he came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why would we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toil or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, do not give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take out the first fish that comes out. When you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is our text today. Pastor, these are fun. These are really fun to dig into today. How do you want to begin?
0: Well, um, I think by where we kind of set it up, that this text is a question of do we take Jesus at his word or not? The first part of the text, Jesus casts out a demon from a boy after his disciples had apparently tried and failed. The interesting thing about this, and we can get more into it as we get through the text into uh, verse 19, the disciples asked, why couldn't we cast this out? Because if we look back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had specifically given to his disciples the authority to cast out demons. and It seems that from their their missionary trips that they probably have been doing so. So why didn't they in this instance when they had Previously. previously? And Jesus points out that they had little or no faith that they could do so at that point. And so we look back at ourselves and see that we also don't take God at his word. We're really in no better position than the disciples are here. We don't necessarily believe that Jesus is going to do what he says in his word either. And yet Jesus still continues to work with the disciples patiently. He still continues to work with us patiently. And it turns right around and points to what is truly most important, that he was going to be handed over and killed and on the third day rise again. And once again, it seems the disciples aren't really ready to take Jesus at his word. We're told that they were greatly distressed. And then we have this very interesting segment at the end about uh, paying the temple tax that we'll get to. That's a little bit different theme. But these first two segments really kind of have this contrast. Jesus says something, or for our version today, our our time today, we read in God's Word certain promises, certain blessings God gives. Do we believe them? Do we receive them in faith? Do we trust God and take Him at His word, or don't we? So I think that's where I would set this up, and we can and dig in and, and see what happens here, starting in verse 14.
1: Yeah, thank you, Pastor, because that is the big question that that flows through this and throughout, because there's so many times that they're terrified, or they're you know they're wondering, is this the son of David? And and sometimes it feels like the devil knows Jesus better than the people. And you're you continually going through that question, and then you bring it back in ourselves. And that's a question that we ask to you, our listeners, as Pastor Clayton and I ask: Do we trust Jesus at His word? And we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our time today, and that He would have us to trust. So, Pastor, I'm going to start this way. Then we'll read 14 through 16 because there's. This is things that set us up for this one that's very important for us before we get to the rest. So verse 14 through 16, we'll read it again. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to the disciples and they could not heal him. So right now, Pastor, they're, you know, they get they get down off the plane. Jesus is with them right away. They're dealing with issues. How would you, because um, we have epilepsy, we have questions of demon possession, how this all fits together. How would you start teaching this? Because, you know, we can get caught in the weeds
0: real quickly. How, what does this set us up for? Well, I think we'll just uh, walk through it chronologically as the text gives it to us that as they come down from the mountain, the mountain transfiguration where Jesus has gone away by himself with Peter, James, and John, they come down the mountain and rejoin the other nine disciples there at the base of the mountain, and then we're told that a man comes and presents himself before Jesus, and the man presents himself in a way that is very, very respectful and respectable. He kneels before Jesus recognizing that Jesus is at least a man with great power and authority. How much more than that the man understands and believes we're not entirely sure, but he then addresses Jesus as Lord. Lord, have mercy on on my son. And so the man is kneeling at Jesus' feet and addressing him as Lord. And so there is at least the possibility here of the contrast that this man that we know nothing else of from anywhere else uh, outside of the Gospels, and we don't hear of him again in Matthew that we know of, that this one that we hear nothing else about might actually be the model of our attitude before God. He's kneeling before Jesus and calling him Lord. (laughs) And then by contrast to that, we'll see how uh, the rest of the disciples react in just a minute. The other thing you brought up that's very interesting is we read in verse 15 that this man's son, it's described as being an epileptic. And so is there a medical issue going on here or is this a matter of demonic possession? We see very clearly in the next couple of verses that in fact, the cause of the boy's problem is that he is possessed by a demon because Jesus then rebukes the demon and casts him out and cures the boy. And so while the, the translation that we have here says that the boy is an epileptic, we do find out later That the cause of these seizures or fits or falling to fire, falling to water, is in fact caused by the demon. And that reminds us that Satan and his minions have no greater desire than destruction and death. They apparently have what little glimpses of happiness they can by causing other people to be miserable right along with them. The the old saying says misery enjoys company. And so that maybe is what's going on here, that um, when a demon is involved with someone, this is never for their good. They always want to inflict pain. They always want to inflict suffering, which is the exact opposite, of course, of what we see in God. God's greatest desire is for his people to have life and to have it abundantly, and in fact, to have it eternally. And so Satan in the exact opposite manner, wants destruction. He wants pain. He wants suffering. He wants death. And in this case, he is inflicting it on this boy by throwing him into fire, throwing him into water, threatening his life, and would have taken the life if he had the opportunity.
1: And we see from this that when it says, Lord, have mercy on my son, and this is a sign of faith. I mean, this is part of um, Matthew 9 with the two blind men asking for mercy. The Canaanite woman Um, that we see in just previous chapters, um, Lord have mercy is that sign of faith, but also as a church, we gather and say those same words. What's the connection when we gather in a divine service, when we say, Lord have mercy, why do we do that?
0: This is called the Kyrie, at the beginning of the divine service. In most uh, orders, we gather together, we call upon God's name, upon ourselves, the triune invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess our sins, we speak a psalm as we join together, and then we recognize that Jesus is our Lord and God. Jesus is one with the Father and the Spirit, as we also join with various people throughout the Gospels saying, Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. And so um, in the Lutheran Church, I think we tend to do that while standing because um, we uh, don't feel terribly comfortable on our knees anymore, it seems like. But uh, standing also is posture of reverence. And so that that's an interesting distinction that, you know, when we sit down in church— um, that's kind of like the standard normal mode. When we stand up, there's something else going on, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we are standing out of honor, out of reverence. Think about if you are seated in a, let's say, a courtroom and the judge walks in, what does everybody do? all rise as, you know, his honor, her honor comes into the courtroom, right? And so we do recognize that standing is a sign of respect. And so where this man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on me, we then stand recognizing that in his word, God is present in our midst. And so in the presence of God, we stand out of respect and we join in saying the exact same thing that people have said time and time again, as they were in Jesus' presence, Lord, have mercy on me. And as it's a request, it is also a claim. It is a statement saying, Lord, I'm asking you for mercy because I believe that you can have mercy, that you do have the power, you do have the authority to do what your word says. And I simply want to claim from you that which you have already promised for me to do, whether that is forgiveness of sins, whether that is healing, whether that is strengthening of faith, whatever the request is. In this case, in our text, it's for healing for the, the boy's son. But the man would not go to you know, any normal citizen on the street and say, have mercy on me, heal my son, because he knows that that ordinary person on the street has no authority, has no ability to do that. And so the simple fact that the man is going to Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy by doing this, he's acknowledging that he believes Jesus has the authority and has the ability to do that. And so this is probably deeper than what we usually think during divine service on Sunday, but it's really hidden in there. That as we cry yeah. out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, we're acknowledging that we actually believe that he does have the authority, he does have the ability to have mercy on us through forgiving our sins, through strengthening our faith, through drawing us to him and his word, Feeding us in his body and blood in the sacrament that he actually can do this and so we cry out mm-hmm. lord have mercy acknowledging yes you can do it and we ask you to do what you have actually promised to do and you almost can feel the emotions
1: um me as a father and and you know and you worked in ministry and you've been around this you almost feel the father that this lord have mercy like you said that he's kneeling before him it was not like just a flippant whatever, it was a deep need for help. Because, you know, when our children go through struggles, it really cuts to the heart. But when you have a son that is almost going into the fire or running to the water, you know, that they that they would be end up with their demise, that would cut to the heart of any father's soul. So you can almost you can almost imagine him saying this, Lord, have mercy on me, uh, on my son. It's just a plead beyond, a blood-curdling type of mercy that he's seeking out. Any thoughts on that? Because there's emotion to this So sometimes we don't focus on um, because we just read the words. Any
0: thoughts? Yeah. And so when we say the Kyrie in church, we probably say it more so as you said, Flippantly is maybe not quite the exact word for describing yeah, it, but but strong, yeah. uh, uh, we certainly don't oftentimes have this outpouring of heartfelt emotion that this man certainly did. As you pointed out, there is nothing that gets to us more than problems or illnesses or struggles with our children. I mean, I would much rather be sick or face a difficult situation than for my children to be sick or face a difficult situation. There's nothing more gut wrenching than a child going through something difficult and something that this may be a little bit of a flippant uh, story, but thinking about uh, a son throwing himself into water about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, 10 years ago, we were on vacation and yep. we wound up on the, um, the, the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic side beach in Florida and we had a young son that was about a year and a half old at that point. And at that point, he had absolutely no fear. And every picture that we have, this son is just trying to throw himself into the water. Now, could he swim? No, he couldn't swim. Did he know about undercurrents and, and toe and, and all these things and ocean currents? He had no idea. All he knew is that looked fun. He was trying to throw himself in. And so every picture we have, my wife and I are desperately grabbing onto anything we grab of him, his shirt collar, his arm, his hand, whatever, and like holding him above the spray. So he's not washed out to sea. And so our, our concern was not for ourselves. It was, you know, let's keep the sun safe from the water. And again, that's kind of a, a, a flippant or, or joking thought, but we certainly know that when our children are in danger, when our children are struggling, there's nothing more gut wrenching for a parent than watching a child go through that. So as you very wisely point out, as this man comes to Jesus, he's not just saying, Oh, hey, Jesus, you know, it's good to see you. Hey, Lord, um, if you don't mind, kind of have mercy on me. Just throw me a little bit here, a little, little tidbit. This is a Father's most fervent plea, filled with passion, filled with every emotion that we face with our children, have mercy on me, heal my son um, because he is in great danger and I want what is good for my son, which also reminds us, as Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, that if we even know how to want what is good for our children, how much more does God want good for us as he is our father? And so in a way, the father is simply calling out to Jesus saying, do what you already want to do. You want good. You want blessings for your children. You want life for your children, just like I do for my son. So give that to him. And Pastor, as we as we look at that, that that is
1: wonderful connections for us to realize that this man knew that this guy was a different kind of king. That's a common theme that we see throughout the kingdom language that's used here. And he, and he, first of all, went to the disciples, which is interesting, as you mentioned in Matthew chapter 10, that they were able to do some of these uh, miracles that, that Jesus asked him to do. This one is unique because he's kind of like, well, that didn't work. I'm going to go to him. So I want to read verse 17 and kind of break down a little bit this, that Jesus um, calling the disciples. And then now, now we kind of what we would probably think was he was talking to the disciples and how that all fits together. So let me read verse 17. And Jesus answered, "Oh, faithless and twisted generation! How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me." And the question that really I think goes through this whole text is the question: Who is the faithless and twisted generation? Pastor, we have about a two minutes left before our break. So, what do you have for us here? (laughs)
0: Well, that's the big question. And as I was reading different commentaries preparing for this, they are all over the place. Some say the man himself was included in this that brought his son to be healed. That seems a bit unlikely because we've just talked about how he certainly seems to very much believe that Jesus can do this. But the crowds are there. We read in the first verse that we had, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up. So is Jesus vaguely looking at the crowd and saying, you crowd, you faithless generation? could be. Is Jesus more specifically talking to the disciples or the nine that had not gone up the Mount of Transfiguration that had tried to cast out this demon and failed? There are those that would say, most specifically, Jesus is talking to the nine. And then we can't overlook either that Scripture is written for our learning as well. And so in some way, we can just say, yes, Jesus is recognizing and rightly accusing whoever hears, including us, that we also don't take Jesus at his word. We don't trust in him as we should, and we also are called to recognize that as Jesus says something, it will come true, and we should have stronger assurance and stronger trust in his word as well. And as we look at that,
1: um it really, <laughs> you're right, I mean, it's really cu- this really cuts to the heart, because Jesus doesn't say hey, you messed up. I mean, he he hits to the heart, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How do you think that hit the disciples at this point?
0: Well, um, I, I think it probably uh, struck a, a very true chord because as we look back in chapter 10, Uh, Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And so Jesus had specifically said, you have authority to cast out unclean spirits. And now they tried to cast out an unclean spirit, as they seem to have done before, and they couldn't. And they're baffled and they're hurt. And they say, Lord, why couldn't we cast this one out? I kind of wonder as we look ahead, as Jesus says in verse 20, because of your little faith. And sometimes we get confused as to faith. Is it, you know, how much, how little, is it a substance, is it an absence, what is it? And perhaps we should look at not what faith is, but who faith is placed in. Mm -hmm. And something that as a pastor many pastors I know and myself constantly struggle with is, are we doing things in our own power, in our own ability, in our own goodness, or are we simply standing in to do what God has given us to do? So I I wonder here, and this is just speculation on my part, But in verse 20, Jesus says, because of your little faith, I wonder if that's because of your little faith in me, but you were overabundant in your faith in yourselves. You thought, oh, we've cast out demons before. We can cast this one out. And they perhaps try to stand against the demon in their own ability, which never, ever works. Uh, Luther has a sacristy prayer that we use uh, here at Zion. I pray before preaching. It says, Lord, if you'd left this to to me by my own authority, I would have messed this all up long ago. Uh, and so that is where faith cries out not to have faith in myself and my own abilities, but to rely on what Jesus has promised and what Jesus is doing. So that, again, this is just my speculation, but perhaps were the uh, disciples a little bit over-faithful, a little bit over-confident in their own abilities while neglecting to rely on Jesus and his word, that it's not the disciples that cast out demons. It's Jesus through the disciples, and likewise in the church. It's not the pastor that baptizes someone. It's Jesus who baptizes through that pastor. It's not the pastor who gives Jesus body and blood. It's Jesus who gives his body and blood through the pastor. It's not the pastor that forgives. It's God who forgives through the pastor. And if we reverse that If we have faith in ourselves, if we have confidence in ourselves, that's a misplaced faith. Instead, what Jesus is calling is don't focus on your faith. Don't focus on what you're doing. Focus on what your faith believes. Focus on who your faith is in and trust that Jesus will do what he promises that he will do.
1: And that's the question we all have. I want to talk more about that on the other side of our break. Who is our faith placed in? Right now we are studying Matthew 17 with Pastor Kirk Clayton. And we'll be right back. studying matthew chapter 17 with pastor kirk clayton of zion lutheran church in muskuda illinois and pastor i want to get to our next verses with that question that you brought up and you've made i mean you've really um, laid the groundwork for this to be the theme throughout is is are you going to believe jesus at his word or as you said right before our break who is our faith placed in who is our faith placed in and that's an important question for the disciples and obviously for us. So verses 18, and I'll read through through 20, as it just becomes a little more interesting. And also, as a little kid, you always hear about the mustard seed. What is this mustard seed and how we look for it, look at it? So verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Pastor, I want to get to that, you know, having faith like a mustard seed and moving mountains because I want to move some mountains. Maybe I can do that when we leave the program here. But verse 18 is it's it's clearly it was a demon that was causing this epilepsy. And and what happens um, when Jesus calls out the demon?
0: Well, we take Jesus' word, and we see in verse 18, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. When Jesus sets out to do something, he accomplishes it, and in Christ and in his promises, we can have full and certain assurance that he will accomplish what he sets out to do.
1: It's really as simple as that, is it not? And then the disciples start, as you said before our break, kind of bring up some questions. Why couldn't we cast them out? And then Jesus has some words for them that I think is important for us to really break down because, um, well, you know, we could probably do a name or claim it type of situation here and say, I'm going to go outside. Uh, Well, Minnesota, we have no mountains. I'm not sure about your area of Missouri. Maybe have mountains of snow right now, huh? (laughs) Mountains of snow. You just say, "Okay, (laughs) move it like a good Star Wars episode or something." Um, and and oh, maybe this would work. How would you make sure to teach this faithfully as Jesus addresses his disciples?
0: Well, again, uh, we can get hung up in saying, what is the mustard seed? A mustard seed we know is a fairly small seed. Jesus uses that comparison elsewhere. But is the the issue here a physical size of faith? I, I don't think so. I think what we're talking about here is what... Do we, in fact, believe as the content of our faith, namely, who do we look to in our faith? Um, And so do we look to ourselves and say, I'm going to be able to do this as a pastor? I am going to be able to preach a particularly good sermon. Uh, I am going to be able to bring peace and healing at a bedside where there is a, a dear member who is sick, or do we simply recognize that we as Pastors are nothing other than simply the mouthpieces for God to proclaim his word, the hands for God to do his work. And the faith of a mustard seed doesn't necessarily mean that we ourselves are inherently better or worse. That would be trusting again in ourselves. So if we use this mustard seed analogy to say, well, I am better because I have bigger faith, then we're completely misunderstanding the point here. The point is not how good or how strong I am. The point is how big and how strong and how powerful and how good God is. And so rather than worry about the comparison of how big is a mustard seed, how much faith do I need to have, that's all heading in the wrong direction. That's all turning back on ourselves. Instead, we simply say, what can Jesus do? do what has jesus promised to do and then hold jesus to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish so rather than worry about how big my faith is is it as big as a mustard seed is it not and will i be able to move mountains or not shovel my driveway in minnesota next time there's a snowstorm because i'll simply you know have faith that i'm going to move this mountain of snow over onto the lawn on the side um you know we're not going to play games like that we're simply going to say. Jesus, this is what you have promised me, and I trust that you will do this, specifically in terms of his promises to bring us forgiveness and salvation as we look to his death and resurrection on the cross, which actually is the very next thing that Jesus brings up here. (laughs) You know, this is probably not an accident that Jesus says, you have little faith, and then he says, I'm going to die and rise, which becomes the central focus of faith.
1: So really, he's he's speaking about, he, he kind of points them to themselves a little bit and said, well, if you had, you know, a grain of mustard seed, you'd be able to do this. And like, oh, I wonder, oh, I wonder what's going on. And then he just pulls it all back to himself um, with the very next verses, because it's clear that they couldn't even handle those healings and keeping faith. And so if they even have a glimmer of hope that they have great faith, he's already told them. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. He's already called them. Oh, you of little faith. And so for them to start maybe thinking, well, maybe I can grab a hold of this somehow is very misguided, as you said. And ironically, not ironically, God has a plan and knows how to point people to the truth. He points exactly where our faith is founded or who our faith is placed in and what our content of our faith is. I mean, it's just, you've already brought us around almost like a diamond showing us every little angle to show us where is this content, where is our faith placed, obviously all in Christ and his work. Anything else before we get to the next words of Jesus about his interactions with the disciples
0: to this point? Well, maybe it's a transition between the two. When people of God are living in times of, you know, that things are going well for us, that our children are healed of something that we were worried about, or there is a concern that was alleviated, or everything seems to be going smoothly, that is a tremendous potential trap as Satan then turns that to focus on us and say, look how well things are going for me. But we recognize, as you talked about from the transfiguration yesterday, that we don't proverbially remain on that mountaintop in the light and splendor and glory. We go back down and we live our everyday lives, not seeing a lot of healing and a lot of miracles around us. Instead, we live our lives in kind of the dull, depressing, everyday grind of life. But faith says, Jesus is here with me in the tough times, in the the daily slog, just as much or potentially more than he is with me in the, the spectacular times where we just feel like we're on cloud nine. And so Jesus directs our attention not to the healing so much as he directs our attention to his upcoming suffering and death, remembering that we do live under the cross and we do live in this world of suffering and death and sin and as we are under the cross that is the one place where we do have hope even in the midst of pain that jesus in his pain and suffering has brought us forgiveness and salvation for when we are in our dark days as well
1: well let's hear those words of christ which is our comfort and our hope and the content of our faith so verse 22 and 23 and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So I found this interesting when I was reading this, is well, Jesus kind of left them hanging for a little bit it appears. You know, he's kind of like, "Oh, you a little faith and boom, then they're going to Galilee." You know, so it doesn't appear that he just gives them the 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 goods right away. I don't know what that means. I'm just it's kind of interesting for they they kind of be left a little bit to it and then he gives them all the goods. And for us like when we confess these similar words in the creed, to me that brings me comfort to know that he has been delivered in the hands of men and killed and raised on the third day. But for them, they were greatly distressed. Any thoughts of why they were distressed by these words?
0: Well, uh, I think this shows their great love and admiration for Jesus. And, you know, if someone were to say, oh, by the way— you know, I've just been diagnosed with cancer and I've been given three months to live. That's going to just distress me, too, as a human being, even though in the back of my mind, I do know that if this is a brother or sister in Christ, they have life eternal. But the human emotion is we, you know, suffer, uh, suffer despair. We suffer, um, you know, mourning when someone dies. And so this is a very natural human reaction. But they are in a way still missing the boat, as we often do, that the point for Jesus' ministry is specifically this, that he would be betrayed, he would be killed, and in this death, he would bring us salvation, even defeat of death itself, because he would rise on the third day, and we we oftentimes lose focus of the absolute centrality of the cross and the resurrection in Jesus' ministry, and and we we think that, oh, he's here to make me happy, he's here to bring healings, he's here to do all these things. No, he, he came to die, and more than that, to rise, and in that death and resurrection, to bring us not healing in our time, but eternal healing in life, in glory with him forever.
1: And so as we look at the the words of Jesus, it's right, right in the middle, and it's right in the middle of our reading today, and this is the second time that he does this. So the first time was in Matthew 16, um, and he'll do it again later in Matthew 20, says it three times, and he... Any thoughts or anything you found on that dynamic? Because it is, I mean, as we're looking at today, it's very well placed. I think it's very well placed in the first one because it's right around the time of feeding and and miracles, and then he does it again in verse chapter twenty as well. So, and did you find anything on that or anything you want to highlight?
0: well it 's interesting that in Matthew chapter sixteen, Jesus says that he would be killed in more of a passive sense, but in verse in Chapter seventeen, he makes very clear that the the scribes and the Pharisees he mentions in chapter 16 um, will not just passively stand by, they will kill him. This is nothing accidental. This is all a very set plan and purpose that Jesus would not just die, he would be killed and that would be an in fulfillment of god's plan and purpose of salvation, but then that's not the end either. He will rise and so it's maybe a little bit interesting here is the intentionality of jesus' death that those who arrest him have the intention to kill him, which in a a strange and almost wonderful way, mirrors God's intention for Jesus to die so that he could suffer the death that we deserve, take our sins, and then rise again that we may have the assurance of life as well.
1: So, Pastor, the the last part, we have about uh, 12 minutes left in our time, and we could easily, in this last part, get to the temple tax And then we can start talking about taxes and this and that. And then us Minnesotans are going to want to talk about fishing and, you know, praying for maybe some coins in the fish or something like that. So I really want to take an extended amount of time in these last verses to make sure that we're on the same page of what Jesus is pointing his disciples to. And as you and I discussed before, there's some very interesting insights that we have received um, from Dr. Gibbs on this front as well. So we'll read the rest of our chapter, verses 24, through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to them, then your sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." No, Pastor, here's the deal is the first time you hear this story, you can't help, especially being a Minnesotan where there's lakes everywhere and everyone's all excited to fish. You think the emphasis is on the fish and the miracle of the coin, which is a miracle, which is a godly thing that he has done. Um, but I don't think that's the main focus of this. How do you how would you steer a Minnesotan like me back to the word and appropriate to what Jesus
0: is saying? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to look at the tax itself, because probably the most famous instance of Jesus dealing with taxation comes when he is confronted and say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I think we all know the answer there. Uh, show me the coin whose inscriptions on the coin Caesar's. Well, then rendered, and Caesar that which is Caesar's, unto God that which is God's. And so when we think of taxation in the Bible, we tend to think about paying taxes to Caesar. Is this a church state thing? Is this a, a government question? No, it's not here, actually. So we get hung up on the word tax, but specifically the 2 drachma tax in question here is not paid to Caesar, to the secular government. This is actually the maintenance fee for continuing the services of the temple. This is how the temple was maintained. This is how the temple sacrifices were paid for. And so there was a sense in Judaism that paying this 2 drachma tax per person each year was in a way buying your participation in the ritual forgiveness and sacrifice given through the temple. And this is a horrible way to think about it. But in a way, you were paying for your redemption by paying this two drachma tax. This did not go to Caesar. This went to the temple, to the maintain maintenance, upkeep of the temple and for the, the daily sacrifices that were offered there. So by paying your two drachmas, you were then receiving the benefits of the sacrifices, which again, <laughs> we, we don't pay for God's grace. We don't pay for forgiveness, but in a way that's what's going on here. So this is the two drachma tax. And what's fascinating is, as we'll see uh, later in, in Holy Week, Um, Jesus is the sacrifice. So why would Jesus, as the sacrifice, pay for an inferior lamb or inferior animal or inferior turtle dove to be sacrificed for him when he himself is the sacrifice of all worth and all value? We also hear Jesus say, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it again. We see this come up at his trial as this is the charge that's brought against Jesus, right? That they, they had various scoundrels that couldn't even lie to accuse Jesus. And they finally say, well, he said he would destroy the temple. The temple he was talking about was his body. And so why would Jesus, who is the temple itself, have to pay for the upkeep of the inferior building in Jerusalem? And yet he does. But I think this is the point that Jesus is making. The sons of the king are free from taxation. Our good works don't pay for God's gift of grace. And so the sons don't pay anything for redemption. Jesus gives that to us as a free gift. And yet the Levitical law did call for offering to upkeep the temple. And so Jesus provides a way... (laughs) through grace a completely unearned gift i mean how many times have you gone fishing and found a shekel in the mouth of a fish right uh, so <laughs> oh. god provides this as a completely free gift um As he continues to provide all of salvation as a free gift through the greater sacrifice of the greater lamb offered at the greater temple, namely Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world being offered as the temple of his body is torn down only to be built again three days in the resurrection. That is the question of the tax. It's not, do we pay Caesar? This is not a separation of church and state question. This is a question of how do we receive the grace given in the temple? Do we buy it? No, we don't. We receive it completely by grace as Jesus, the greater lamb, offers himself at the greater temple of his body and gives that benefit to us completely by grace, completely for free.
1: And as we see the the language, and I want to I want to focus on this because uh, we can easily get to the broad strokes, but I like what he says. He says he asks him a question. What do you think, Simon? So you know, Peter, he gets kind of gets the brunt of these like teachable moments throughout the bible right he goes out into the water his name's rock but yet he's walking on water and all this stuff there's a point where simon's like i'm not i'm not answering your questions anymore like this is it i'm done but but here he says what do you think simon from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others and when he says others he talks about the sons being free, and he's speaking about that. And I, I'm reminded of other parts in the Bible where it talks about you know, the truth will set you free and other parts where it talks about that you're adopted as sons. How would you um, connect those dots for people? As it can be a little bit confusing, but the importance of being a son and the freedom that he speaks of.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring out this teachable moment as well, and Jesus really seems to jump on this. This is a little bit striking. We can read over this and, and skip it. So the collectors of the two drachma tax, not, they don't go to Jesus. They go to Peter. And they say, Peter, is your master going to do this? He's, he's going to pay this tax for us, isn't he? He's, he's not going to cause problems here, right? And, and so Peter just, who usually, usually has no problem speaking, we saw that transfiguration, right? He just says, yes, <laughs> one word answer. <laughs> yes. All right, he'll do it. Yes. Uh, and then when he comes in, Jesus, Jesus almost jumps him here. This is very clearly, Jesus wants to teach a lesson here. It says, uh, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, you know, so Peter doesn't even have the chance to relate. Oh, by the way, Jesus, this this question was brought up. How are we going to address this? Which also indicates, by the way, that Jesus knows that that conversation has happened. This shows Jesus' omniscience as true God, that he's aware of the conversation, even having not been a part of it. And so Peter doesn't even have to say, Jesus, I got a question for you. Jesus introduces this, as you say, teachable moment right away and says, Peter, what do you think, Simon? from whom do the kings of the earth take total tax? So Jesus is already aware in his omniscience that this question has come up, and he knows that he needs to clarify that salvation is not based on what we pay. Salvation is not based on what we do. Salvation is the free gift that he, as the master, will extend to his sons, and he then calls us his sons. And so We cannot pay. We cannot earn salvation in any way. But as sons, Jesus gives that to us for free. We receive the blessings. We don't pay to be blessed. We receive all that God has in store for us as a free gift. And this is, I don't think that I've ever
1: had a moment, um, a moment wrong. I don't, my words are not coming out. Like I said, I said flippant before. That's probably a little strong. And right near I'm trying to think of the right words. But when, when someone speaks about that we are saved by grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, you know, faith alone, I don't know if I've ever looked at this text as a pointing to that freedom that we have in Christ that is all his work. Never have I done that. Pastor, is this something that you've been able to teach before? This is something, like you said, Dr. gives us commentary where he points us to that point. Um, but this is something I want to use now, from now on, to show this freedom that we have in the full sufficiency of the cross. And Any thoughts on that?
0: interpreting this before this point yeah, yeah. To, to make very clear i didn't come up with this either and no i had <laughs> I had had not seen this in the text before that's why um you know there, there's the old saying if you see a turtle on a fence post you know somebody lifted him up there and put him there right and so you've referenced uh <laughs> dr gibbs in his commentary this is the direction that dr gibbs goes and so i am merely standing on the shoulder of his scholarship, yeah. that he points out this connection that, that he sees as very strategically placed, that he sees that Jesus prophesies his death and then connects that directly to Jesus being the greater fulfillment of the sacrifices and of the temple and sees how Matthew intentionally wove those together to draw this out for us. But no, uh, before I started prepping for the show, I, I had no clue of that. Uh, and so yeah. thank you to, to Dr. Gibson and his scholarly commentary on that. But that also brings out the point that God's word is an inexhaustible source of treasure. And we Mm -hmm. can never gloss over something and just say, oh, I've read that dozens of times before, hundreds of times before. I know all there is to know about it. Martin Luther would say about the catechism that he wrote, (laughs) that he never fully understood the catechism he should, and he daily needed to ponder the catechism that he wrote (laughs) uh, to Mm -hmm. learn more from it. And so we can never exhaust the treasures or riches of Scripture. And so that's why prepping for Bible class is fun. Prepping for sermons is fun. Prepping for show like, this is fun because we learn and we see things that we hadn't seen there before. So yeah, I've never taught this this way before. This was a new insight for me and it's a joy to be able to share it. And then as you say, to have this excitement, to be able to continue to grow and share this with others that they too may see that here, there's a beautiful little nugget of a narrative version of what? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace are we mm-hmm. saved through faith. This is not our work. We can't pay the two temple, the, the two drachma tax. That's not where it's at. Jesus gives it to us as the greater sacrifice for free.
1: And I'll say this, and Pastor, thank you for that, because I can just tell the joy in your heart, and into my heart, too, the excitement that we have over this free grace that we see once again in Scripture. And then the irony of it is tomorrow's study. I'm looking forward to this. What is the first thing that they ask? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All of a sudden, their eyes are pointed to one another, even after all this freedom and grace that the Lord had given to them. But I'm not, we're, that's for tomorrow. We're not going to worry about that. Pastor, we have about 30 seconds left in our time. How would you summarize and encourage our listeners by these words?
0: Well, with law and gospels, you just pointed to that the very next thing the disciples say is, who's the greatest? And so we oftentimes, you know, we hear the gospel we hear how this is all for free and then you talk to somebody and say well you know really i've, I've done pretty well i'm a pretty good person like no you still don't get it you're still asking am i not the greatest whereas faith points us not to ourselves faith points us to jesus and what he has done for us and faith simply throws up our hands and say We don't have enough faith. We don't have the faith of the mustard seed. We've failed in casting out demons, however you want to take that, in our own lives as application. We have not held Jesus at his word. We've not trusted him as we should, but... Jesus as Lord does have mercy on us. He has offered the sacrifice for our salvation. He has torn down and rebuilt the temple of his body that we as sons may receive that blessing in time and for all eternity. It's not about us. It's not about who's the greatest. It's not about what we've done. Faith doesn't cling to that. Faith looks to Jesus and says, Jesus has done it all. And Jesus has done it for me.
1: Pastor Kirk Clayton of Zion Lutheran Church in Mascuda, Illinois, giving us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 17. Pastor Clayton, thank you for bringing us his gifts.